Hello and welcome to the first episode of the Pulse Sock Pod with me, Jack Roberts, and you, Eve Samuel Richardson. How are you? I'm good, thank you. How are you? Yeah, I'm good. I mean, before we start, I think congratulations are in order. Uh, if you don't, if you probably won't know, but if you didn't with that, either way, uh, this afternoon, Eve presented on the Northumbria IRP Student Roundtable. Yeah. Do you want to tell them a little bit about that, about what you did? Yeah, it was a brilliant opportunity, really. Uh, I was approached by Helena, lovely Helena. Uh, just after Christmas, she invited me to sit on the panel uh, and I decided to speak about the North-South Divide, which is something that's really close to me and something I'm really passionate about. It was a great opportunity, um, somewhat nerve-wracking, very nerve-wracking, but it was brilliant. Um, really thankful for it. So, Well, as someone who was witness to that i thought he did very well thank you very well and i mean it was a really interesting panel actually very interesting some of the things that were being said that was quite funny when was it keith said something about what was it about was it like people in south gosforth had like a 12 year longer life expectancy than biker he was explaining how in one of his lectures he used a metro map with the expected lifespan of the people who lived there so his example was biker versus south gosforth and there was about was it how many years twin about 12 or something 12 yeah 12 years between and he was basically trying to make the point about how just how like, divided newcastle is not just the uk the, as a whole even yeah, within cities you have huge inequality the, the north south divide yeah. and the leveling up agenda is that even within cities there are areas that mm. are so sort of split and i was just i was going to make the point actually in the chat that bike is my local metro station and Same. i'm from doncaster so yeah. i'm on two fronts i'm absolutely stuffed <laughs> <laughs> no hope for you jack no no hope for me at all no it's really interesting to listen to them and keith's um topic followed on quite nicely from mine as well because i did the north south divide and then he followed that up with leveling up agenda which was really really interesting yeah definitely and i suppose that this this is probably an appropriate time to plug the next seminar, which is taking place next Wednesday, the is it the second? The second, two till three again, and the Teams link will be available. Um, yeah, it's Annalise Dodds is coming to speak to us, which is very very exciting. Chair of the Labour Party, chair of the Labour Party, the former Shadow Chancellor. Yeah, and she's done a lot for women's equality within politics. She's a very interesting speaker, so I will definitely be listening to her. So quite a trailblazer. I'm, I'm really looking forward to that. Yeah, like, have your questions at the ready. And it's like we said in the introduction, maybe just maybe we might be able to get a connection established there and maybe in the future have her on as a guest that would be brilliant which would be that would be quite something definitely so i suppose at this point it's probably it's probably time to get into the topic of discussion for today which is the ukraine crisis what would you call it would you call Um, it would you call it a crisis or an escalation yeah escalation i think is quite nice some people have referred to it as a war i would not go that far no Uh, at this moment in time i would not go as far to say it is a war um escalation um, I think escalation's appropriate because it's like we're saying I wouldn't quite border it on crisis just yet, mm. but it's sort of it's getting there. it's heading that way. Yeah. And I just want to say as well, this is a this is a largely unscripted podcast. We have notes, but it's it's quite unscripted. And at the time of recording, the twenty sixth of January at a quarter to five, all this information is up to date. Yeah. So things may change by the time this goes out but mm. so this information is correct as of the 26th of january in the afternoon yeah. really so i suppose it's probably appropriate to give a bit of background for the non-politicos and to an extent the politicos who listen to this yeah to try and understand what's actually going on in ukraine 
So as you probably know, the Ukraine and Russia have been sort of united. They were united for centuries and as Ukraine was ruled by Russia. And first it was obviously the Russian Empire, and then it was the USSR. And since the USSR's collapse and Ukraine's subsequent independence, what's been happening is that Ukraine has sought closer relations with the West, which obviously isn't... Russia aren't taking that lightly because Ukraine was the most populous state after Russia within the USSR. And for them, for Russia to lose Ukraine was the, was was big for them. And they've always sought to keep them close. But Ukraine wants to sort of move away. I guess it's very similar to Crimea. Yes. In a well, certain way. Funnily enough, that's what we sort of will be getting yeah. onto with all of this. So, um, essentially, the, the election of Vladimir Putin at the beginning of the 20th century has catalyzed sort of Russia's like pushback against the sort of Western shifting of Ukraine uh, because Putin was a member of the KGB uh, in the in the last years of the Soviet Union. Which, if you didn't know, the KGB was like the Soviet the Soviet spy agency. Basically, he worked in I think East Germany before then becoming before entering politics. After, as being elected the mayor of St. Petersburg after the USSR's collapse. And Putin is no communist, but he's certainly inciting the sort of nationalist ideas that were pushed by the communist regimes of the USSR throughout most of the 20th century. And the situation with Ukraine is interesting because what's sort of been happening since Putin's election is they have been moving between sort of one ideology and the other and again i just want to apologize in advance because this this pronunciation is going to be absolutely horrendous go for it so between 2010 and 2014 the there was a pro-kremlin president in charge of ukraine which if you didn't know the kremlin is what's sort of referred to as russia because it's the home of the russian parliament parliament, and government yeah so that's why we'll be using the term kremlin so there was a pro-kremlin president in charge of Ukraine, whose name was uh, Viktor Yanukovych. I think that's how you pronounce it. Like I say, that's probably wrong. And he'd been... He was originally elected in 2004, but was ousted over accusations of vote rigging, which then brought in a pro-Western president whose name I have stupidly forgot to note down. But but the point is, is that uh, Yanukovych was president between 2010 and 2014, but he was ousted because he rejected a deal between the U- between Ukraine and the EU, which would have brought their relations closer. And like, a, and that's because, like I say, he was pro Kremlin and wanted close relations with Moscow rather than the West. And as a result of his ousting, this is what led to the Ukrainian peninsula of Crimea being annexed in 2014 by Russia, and separatists in the Donbas area of eastern Ukraine were then backed in their sort of fight against Ukraine. So Russia essentially backed them. And over 14,000 people have been killed in the region since 2014. And there was a ceasefire agreed, which sort of stopped major conflicts happening, but it hasn't united the sides politically. So there's still been this small sort of scale, these small scale fights and conflicts that that are still occurring in the region. But it's not as serious as it was back in 2014. And the problem is 
the reason why this has come to a head again is because last week the, there was US intelligence that claimed that Russia planned to deploy up to 175,000 troops to the Uca- Russian-Ukrainian border for a potential invasion, which could be happening as early as this year. So soon, basically. Which is... It's interesting because what's, what you can see there is that Russia clearly want to expand this eastern sphere of influence and scupper Ukraine's embrace for the West. And Ukraine, obviously now being a sovereign nation, is saying they're saying that Russia can't do that. Yeah, they've asked for our help, really. And when, a- we, when we've given our help, they've been thankful. So. They've, a- they've asked for help, and they're, and they're getting help in terms of sort of ammunition supply from places like Britain and mm-hmm. the US. France. France. But, the, but what's interesting is that Germany... Uh, yeah, but for historical reasons, they're not gonna get. In, they're not gonna jump to get involved, are they? Well, not necessarily historical reasons. This is what I was gonna come on to in a bit, actually. Basically, there's a big pipeline connecting Russia and Germany. Yeah, there's a massive pipeline. Oh, energy. Yeah. Ah. And funnily enough, I was in a lecture today uh, on the politics of oil. That's the sort of module that I'm taking this year, when we were talking about hydrocarbons and fossil fuels. But the reason why Germany aren't getting involved is because they have this. They are basically they're not they're not being bankrolled, but they rely heavily on Russian gas. Yeah, as do we to a certain extent. We do to a certain extent as well, but I don't think we're as reliant because I yeah. think Britain is quite sort of rich in all three of the fossil fuels, mm-hmm. coal, oil, and natural gas. So we we're not as heavily reliant as Germany is, and. There's one company really, Gazprom, that is the that is the main company which is supplying Germany with Russian gas, and it's quite interesting because Gazprom is investing quite heavily in football, and I know this is this is sort of going off on a little bit of a tangent now, so excuse me, but there was this one video on YouTube from the Athletic which is called "Why is Gazprom investing in football?" and if you're a football fan, if you watch things like the Champions League, the German Bundesliga, you will see Gazprom ad- advertising everywhere. And in like advert breaks on sides on on like football team shirt that and so that's what's interesting about all of this is that Germany Germany is sort of backing away even though they're probably they're probably the most powerful country in the EU but they're not doing anything about it which is I don't know in my opinion I think is irresponsible really I don't know what you sort of make of that. I think it's very interesting because some people view what Russia is doing at the border as a bit of a, they're trying to provoke Western countries mm-hmm. because especially what they did with Crimea is, was I think it was Crimea. Yes, Crimea. Where they kind of provoked Western countries and then when Western countries reacted to that, Russia said, oh, oh, they're going to war with us. We've not done anything wrong and they're attacking us and kind of span it that way. I think they got away with it last time, so they're going to do it again this time. That's the problem, give an inch, take a mile. Mm. And it's... Especially Liz Truss was interviewed on Radio 4 this morning, and um, when she was pushed to answer what will Boris actually do in terms of sanctions for Putin and and Russian banks and other high-power individuals in Russia, she wouldn't really answer the question. And I think it's a bit of a shame that she wouldn't because it maybe shows... Russia that we're not being as harsh as we should be if she'd sat there on radio for this morning and said if they continue to do what they're doing this is what we will do a b c d and laid it out there then Russia would have kind of gone oh 
you know, they would have been a bit more aware. But because she wouldn't explain what, you know, the sanctions that they would actually put in place, I think it makes us look a little bit weak, I'm afraid. Yeah, and I mean, I was just going to come on to the fact, I think it's hilarious some of what, like, Liz Truss has been saying about all this. Not, Not hilarious, like, what she's been saying has sort of come across as strong. I think she said at one point is that Russia's trying to sort of recreate the Soviet Union, mm. which, to an extent, you can you can kind of see with it wanting to expand its... Because it, it holds a lot of influence still over Belarus, for example, which is also in that region. Yeah. Whereas other countries sort of around there, like Ukraine, are wanting to break away. Sometimes it's not what she says, it's what she doesn't say that annoys me. Yeah, definitely. And like I say, going back to the hilarious bit, I just think it's funny because from the way she's sort of been acting in the media about other events, which we'll probably which we're probably going to come on to later, she does seem like a bit of a like a bit of a Tory careerist. And I think she's trying to toe toe the line because she's she says she's backing Boris. She's backing John- Boris all the way. Yeah, yeah, backing Boris all the way to sort of ride the storm. She was asked this morning whether she's after his job and she said no. Yeah. She said she strongly believes in Boris as a leader and that he'll continue to lead. And I just I did laugh a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And it's like and it was as well, from what she's saying is this, this is sort of for this crisis, she is talking here in a sort of careerist manner because what you what you've found since Boris Johnson became prime minister is that he's all about this churchillian spirit is that it, it was like it with brexit is that you know we've got to we've got to just we've got to fight them we've got to fight and it's the same with covid is that oh we'll fight this and we'll get through it and now it's like with russia it's not necessarily a call to arms but it's more of trying to now that britain's now that we've got this quote unquote global britain I feel like they're trying to sort of push this idea of of the Churchillian like concept of well, I know it's not a Churchillian concept, but this idea of like never surrender, mm. which is what Churchill preached during the war. And I know that Boris Johnson is a big admirer of Churchill because I've read his I've read his biography on Churchill, but I feel, I've got a it feels like just a cheap tribute act, and especially like with this with this whole situation. It does feel like a bit of a cheap tribute act. I don't know what you seem to think. What you seem to think about it? Yeah, I think it's definitely going to be interesting to see how these events unfold over the next few days and weeks. Um, especially if Boris does leave, and well, whether he leaves or whether he's defenestrated, I'm not sure what will happen. But it'd be interesting to see if we do get a new leader, how they will cope with this, how yeah, they'll manage this. Definitely, but it's like. It's one of these things as well because even though Russia is no longer the superpower, it's it doesn't want a Western ally on its border. Yeah, which is to an extent understandable, but Russia can't surely can't be allowed to bully its way into re-establishing a president in these in these sovereign states. Mm-hmm. So they don't have any connections to anyone except themselves. Yeah, they they they're out to make these connections, and if if Ukraine want to go off and align themselves with the west in my opinion they should be allowed to do that i agree and and it's not right for russia to sort of come back in and be like no you're sticking to you're you're sticking to what's been happening for centuries and you're aligning yourselves with us i mean you can understand where putin's coming from but um really i think ukraine need their own yeah 
I can't think what the word is. No, no, this is, this is what's going to happen with an with podcast. I need podcast. a dictionary. Yeah, we'll probably just have to invest in a dictionary that'll just sit there and then we'll just hear us clicking through words. the pages. But yeah, it definitely, it's, like I say, sovereign, it, it's sovereign nation states here. It's not like Ukraine's trying to antagonise anybody. They're just trying... I think they are. You think... I absolutely think Wait, Russia... Did, by did I say Russia? I meant Ukraine. Oh, okay. Sorry, I meant, I meant Ukraine. <laughs> yeah, I think Russia are absolutely being oh, Russia the antagonist are Russia are definitely trying to antagonise anybody. Yeah, everybody. they're pushing all the buttons. And the, and I think, I think it's because they're not happy that China are now becoming the new non-Western superpower. Mm. I think that's what it is. And India to a certain and extent And India to a well. certain extent. But the thing is... Is that war with China from the between the West and China is far less likely because of how the West depend economically on China, and that's that, that's why I don't think Russia's happy about because it's almost like to a certain extent, although you've got sort of the the anomalies of like Hong Kong and places like that, where it feels like China are being allowed to sort of come up and they're basically getting a free pass. Whereas and Russia don't like that because Russia want to be seen. Russia is still sort of embodying this spirit of the cold war where they want to be seen as the alternative to sort of what they probably perceive as western imperialism definitely yeah so it's it's a hard one really well it's not it's not a hard one but it's it's not good is what we're trying to say because ukraine should be allowed in my opinion to make their own decisions because even though they're not a member of the eu they're not a member of nato they are still, at the end of the day, a sovereign nation who should be allowed to go and make their own decisions. And that's what the sort of Brexit argument was based on, is that because Britain was part of the EU, the sort of vote leave camp was saying that we couldn't go out into the world and establish these relations. relations. They wanted Britain to be able to do that. And to, and to an extent, that's what's happening here with Ukraine, is that Russia aren't allowing them to establish their own relations, which... You know, I don't think, I don't think should be allowed to happen. We, we can't give Russia this free pass. Yeah, absolutely not. Do you think they're a bit jealous of China? Well, if, we, if we're going to sort of use those like sort of schoolgirl drama analysis, <laughs> jealous. It sounds like something out of Mean Love Girls. Love a bit of gossip. It sounds like something out of Mean Girls, doesn't it? It's like <laughs> They're jealous. Um, I think they are a little bit. Yeah. This sort of relationship, albeit strange, that the West has with China. I think Russia maybe feels like their place at the table yeah. has been taken and Ukraine is just that step too far for them. What was Lindsay Lohan's character in Mean Girls called? Katie. Uh, K- K- Katie. Katie. It's, it's, it's Katie Heron versus Katie Regina Heron. George just on a more on a international and with nuclear weapons involved. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And the burn book is the, the global economy. The burn book is the global economy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'd watch that. That that would be a be a good film. Hundred percent, I'd watch that. If there are any sort of indie uh, film directors out there looking to try and make the way in like Hollywood or whatever, there's your idea: is plagiarize Mean Girls and just spin it into international politics. I but that's think not that, me. Yeah. Con- but that's not me condoning plagiarism. <laughs> that sounds like a brilliant idea to me. Yeah. Putting IR into the mainstream. IR into the mainstream through these, not niche pop culture references, but through these recognisable. If you haven't watched Mean Girls, where have you been? <laughs> I was going to say, even I've watched Mean Girls and I'm not really the type of person to watch. I prefer... Like, it's a rite of passage to I watch Mean Girls. Action for, like, I've been binge watching Peaky Blinders all week. So, 
Yeah, so sort of like closing thoughts on this discussion about Ukraine. Sort of what what do you think? I'm going to be keeping a very, very close eye on this. I also do the module of foreign policy analysis, and this is all we've been talking about all week. Yeah. Um, very, very interesting. Um, scary too, to a certain extent. When you think about it in real terms, what's happening on the ground, it very quickly could become a war. I don't think it's a war right now, but very quickly it could become a war. Mm-hmm. That, that scares me a little bit. Yeah. And it's the same with me. I'm sort of doing a module called The Politics of Oil and Global Warming. And I don't imagine we'll just be covering oil. We'll be covering sort of like fossil fuels in general. And like I was saying earlier, is that Russia have these... Well, Russia sort of like is what was... I think we're looking at this... What was it called now? Like a central ellipsis or something? Mm -hmm. Ellipsis? Which sort of focused the world's... uh, It was like 70% of the world's oil field and about 40% of the world's natural gas fields were all focused in this one area which ranges from the sort of persian gulf up to the sort of south of russia and that's where most of the world's resources are concentrated and russia have got a sort of large large supply of that really so it's it could turn into a big this 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 is going to go way further than foreign policy this is going to this is coming going to go into trade and economics economics it's this has the potential i mean if the west did retaliate and sort of go into Ukraine and Russia as well. Um, would it be, this is something we were discussing, would it be for humanitarian reasons? Or is there another motive behind it? Because, in my opinion, humanitarian intervention can be justified. Um, but is this humanitarian intervention, I think, is what we've got to establish before I agree or disagree with whether they intervene or not. Mm-hmm. Is it humanitarian or is it whether it has the potential to be if there's going to be sort of if there's going to be sort of civilian lives in the way mm. of russia just like this is what i mean marching, or is it actually more geographical? marching through eastern ukraine and yeah. just like taking what's ever in their or side are they doing it more for territorial reasons i think it's nationalism nationalism i think it's nationalism is that it's russia trying to re-establish itself as the mm as the ultimate non-Western alternative. But it'll be interesting to see how the media and government spin it as to justifying what they do. Whether they say, oh, we did it for inter- uh, humanitarian reasons. Mm-hmm. It'll be very interesting to see what the, what they say. Definitely, definitely. Okay, so I think that's the sort of, that's Ukraine covered. And just on that note, if you would like to sort of get involved and let us know your thoughts on any of these issues. Yeah, any questions. We will have, and any questions, of course, we will have an Instagram page set up in the due course. Definitely please get involved because it's like we were saying in our introductory podcast, this is by this is by students for everyone. So I'd, it'd be great to hear your thoughts on the matter and just Definitely. see what... Definitely, challengers, get involved, yeah, any questions. I'm going to say, because we're, we're not here to preach at you to preach at you at all it's just a platform for discussion it's more just than a platform anything. for discussion exactly exactly that's probably the best way to put it so moving on ambushed by cake that is now my favorite political quote of all time it was definitely a colin caterpillar oh you, yeah, but was it colin or was it cuthbert it will have been colin colin colin's the s one isn't it yeah because oh, yeah, someone quoted and said um no there was a quote that said there were marks and spencer's nibbles at the party oh i've not seen that yeah i've seen that it said um because they're, they're explaining the different parties and it's like wine cheese m s nibbles m s nibbles and that's why i'm thinking it was definitely a colin caterpillar cake drek and boris likes percy pigs definitely yeah i mean i absolutely love them I absolutely love him. But yeah, so it was big news this week. Uh, A day before the Sue Gray report into the lockdown parties was due to be released, 
the Metropolitan Police announced they're going to be conducting their own report into the into what has now been dubbed Partygate, which is essentially where the civil service are looking to investigate potential COVID breaches in 10 Downing Street. And the Sue Gray report, Sue Gray for context, is a civil senior, senior civil, civil servant. servant. Yeah. So it's supposed to be as impartial as, as possible. I don't know how you can be when you work for the government and mm-hmm. your job literally depends on the government. Yeah. You, know, spe- you cannot have a tiny bit of bias. And especially given that it's been the same party in government for the last 12 years. Yeah. And I've I got to be honest, I don't know how long Sue Gray has been in her post. I'm not sure. So it's one of those things where this report yeah. is meant to be impartial, but... The, for the Met to come out the day before the, the report was due to be released yeah. and and meant that now the report has had to be postponed. Well, yeah. This is this is the sort of big debate that's been happening At on first, the floor of Westminster. Yeah, yesterday it, w- it came out that Sue Gray's report was, was just not going to be released ever because you can't really comment on an ongoing police matter. So as far as we were concerned, yesterday midday, Sue Gray's report was not ever going to be released. Then by yesterday evening, uh, Sue Gray came forward and she said, okay, bits of the report can be published, but some bits are still private and will be kept until the Met Police have done their thing. Uh, And then this morning, uh, I was listening to Radio 4 this morning and they were saying Sue Gray's report will be released imminently. Whether they, They weren't sure whether that would be in full or certain bits of the report but that was this morning they said imminently it will be released mm-hmm. uh, it's now eight minutes past five in the afternoon and sue gray's report has not been released okay so what you're what you're saying is that there's a chance albeit small that this could be released while we're on air that's what i'm thinking i, I do have bbc news app open and i am ready um keir starmer has already urged the pm to re- to um Publish the report in full. That's what Keir Starmer wants. Mm-hmm. Um, but we all know what Keir Starmer wants. He does not necessarily always get. Mm-hmm. Um, so it'll be very interesting to see whether whilst we're recording this, the Sue Gray report does come out. And if it does, I don't know what we'll do. What do you think of the fact that the Met previously said it wouldn't look at retrospective COVID yes. breaches yeah. and then to now come out the day before this report's meant to be due and say that actually we are going to conduct this. So what I'm getting from that is that Sue Gray's report has found something that is that did go against the rules massively because what the Met Police said was that they don't investigate crimes of this sort retrospectively as in as in they don't they don't um, investigate crimes against uh, lockdown rules that were not too harmful. Yeah, to the COVID, you know, to the COVID situation. And I mean, I'm not a conspiracy theorist by any means, but mm-hmm. I think this absolutely stinks mm. of something. It just and it doesn't smell good. No, it doesn't smell good at all. Why? Why is it taken this long for the Met to suddenly get involved, and then to get involved the day before this report was due to? They were trying to sort of keep their cards to the chest by being like, "Well, we're not going to get involved. We're not going to get involved." Yeah. And now all of a sudden they're going to be involved. I think they've only got involved because of what Sue Gray has found in her report. Yeah. And that's caused them to be triggered into getting involved. Um, I just feel really, really sorry for Allegra Stratton in all of this. Mm. She resigned from a job that wasn't even particularly to do with what she was doing when she made the jokes. She didn't even go to the party. She just laughed about it, which, okay, is a bit insensitive. But as far as I'm concerned, she didn't commit a crime. 
No. Yeah, our prime minister and all of his people closest to him have, as far as I'm concerned, committed a crime. And I don't see any of them resigning. I don't see any of them apologising. But it's still sort of knowing about what happened and, like, joking about it when when people were doing their best to follow the rules. But and like I said, like you say, is that she didn't necessarily attend these events, and she she was only jo- she was only having a laugh about it. Yeah, by the time she resigned, she was actually working for COP twenty six, which I feel really bad that she had to resign from a job that, as far as I'm concerned, had nothing to do with COVID. Um, and she was clearly remorseful. You could you could really tell uh, those images of her stood outside of her house in tears. They really stick with me. I think uh, no politician should ever be that upset mm-hmm. and made to feel that bad um i mean everybody's got their own opinion but personally i don't think what happened to her was fair i don't know i i, I don't think i, I don't, don't know th- how boris can stand in the house of commons oh no definitely not but i don't i don't feel as though um there's this tweet here from a guy called alexander brown who said uh and i'll probably have to beat this out in the edit Go on. Uh, on a human level it's really form to let Allegra Stratton resigning tears for making a joke about parties when yeah. you have lots when you and lots of other people you know attended them not the not the behavior of a good person yeah that is exactly my viewpoint who's that from Alex Brown yeah yeah I completely agree with that do you mind just reading out his Twitter handle yes it's uh Alex of Brown Alex of Brown so yeah. she uh completely sorry agree he with is that. a He's a the Westminster correspondent for the Scotsman. I completely agree with what he says there. Uh, I think it's a bit disgusting, really, that Boris can still stand in in uh, Westminster and say what he continues to say when one of his closest... Well, I don't know how close she was particularly to Boris, but uh, that she had to go through all of that pain to resign from a job in COP26... Yeah. Definitely, but I, d- I don't want to sort of... I don't want to sort of just, like, basically grovel to a lady... Allegra Stratton because I, I still I still think that what she said was in bad taste yeah it was insensitive it was insensitive and it's totally understandable why people are angry so I feel but as though she apologised for that and she was she very a lot more remorseful than Boris and though, anyone close to him has yeah, been yeah but I do get the feeling that I think we're at excuse me we're at odds on this but mm. that, that's fine I think I'm just very emotional I'm yeah, very, I'm maybe. very um, sensitive maybe so uh, and just before we sort of finish the topic I just want to say that I think Chris, Chris Dick is in, totally incompetent. I think oh, I think she needs to resign. That's interesting. And, I've never really thought about and her competence before. Put give do the Sarah Everard vigil last year as a prime example of yeah. her incompetence. Oh, okay, I see where you're coming she from. She is. She should have been out of that job ages ago. Right. And like like I say, for her to just sort of sit back and let this all happen, and then all of a sudden get involved at the eleventh hour is not good form it's interesting that you say that i've not really ever thought about and i'm not and i'm not trying to attack the woman personally here this is purely politics Mm -hmm. but i feel as though as head of the met she is incompetent bold statement i've not really thought about it so after today i'll probably go and have a little think about how i feel about cressida dick yeah Yeah. we'll we'll not get into too much discussion about that but i just wanted to make my feelings known so the so the last topic that we're going to briefly talk about today is the Department of Media, Culture and Sports Select Committee, which has been going on this week, which has been looking into racism in cricket. And this this sort of topic is will get its own episode eventually because this is so 
deep and it's something that matters a lot to me personally yeah, being I was a, just being gonna a, say this being is a massive sports fan thing. but something happened this week that i just want to talk about because i'm it's it's made me mad and it's made a lot of people mad for the right reasons so yesterday the 25th of january the chairman of the middlesex county cricket club michael o'farrell stood before the dcms select committee which is where basically how would you describe a select committee you are questioned about things you've done or things you've said in front of a panel of um i don't really know i think mps are mps MPs and lords lords um people who are from who people who have knowledge in that area basically are selected to sit on the select committee yeah um and you are questioned um kind of like a court situation in a way so this them online so this select committee has been launched by the department of media culture and sport in the wake of the azim rafiq and the yorkshire county cricket club racism scandal which is horrendous is absolutely horrendous and as and as a yorkshireman myself who loves cricket i would probably say that yorkshire are my favorite team i am absolutely disgusted with what's happened like i've got i bought a yorkshire jersey last year and i've not put it on since these allegations have come out it's in the back of my wardrobe because i'm i'm absolutely disgusted and like i say this is going to get its own its own episode eventually but something like i say something happened this week that i want to talk about so michael o'farrell is the chairman of the middlesex county cricket club which is based down in london area middlesex being a historical county and this panel is looking into sort of racism in cricket institutionalized racism and he claims that there was that there's a lack of diversity in english cricket and i'm sort of going to like paraphrase what he said because south asian players preferred to focus on education whilst football and rugby and this is a direct quote now more attractive to the afro-caribbean community which what is he talking about Cricket, I know you. I know you're not really a sports. Yeah. Cricket is one of the most diverse sports in the world. Surely you realise that. Yeah, I think he is making a hugely wrong generalisation there. It's a horrendous generalisation because look, if you look at the sort of cricket World Cup that that took place last summer, look at some of last summer, last uh, autumn slash winter. So look at some of the teams that competed. India, in India, absolutely adore cricket. India's got the biggest, the biggest sort of franchise league in the world pakistan uh, bangladesh were there south africa the netherlands scotland were new zealand new there? zealand uh, new zealand australia? new zealand in the final australia won it of uh, i think zimbabwe like it. they went wow. at the world cup they play it in zimbabwe they in the usa are actually starting to pick it up as well cricket is one of the most diverse sports in the world yeah the problem is is that english cricket is the complete opposite there was a study done by a, by I think a company called Cricket Bet India in 2020, which found which found that that 62.5 percent of England's test side. So for context, the test the test matches is the most traditional form of cricket, which takes place over five days, and so like it's a very sort of historically important to the game of cricket. 62.5 percent of England's test side were privately educated. Do you know what the national average is for people that are private educated in the oh, UK? It's single figures, isn't it? Six percent. Yeah. There's near the disproportion in that is absolutely shocking, and it shows that cricket is still an elitist sport within the UK. Within the UK, yeah. and what 
And time and time again, and this is probably a bit of a generalisation, but we found in many examples in society, when there's elitism, there's racism. And these comments about South Asian players, cricket players wanting to focus on education and football and rugby being more appealing to the Afro-Caribbean community, that is just that that is a racist stereotype, especially the one about South Asian and education. Yeah. I haven't really read much about this, but has he apologised for those comments? I don't believe so. It, like I say, they were only yesterday, yeah. but I don't think it got a lot of backlash. Even Azim Rafiq, who's sort of at the centre of all this, he yeah. he was dis- he was disgusted mm. and quite frankly so. Quite rightly so, because sorry. Because when you stand in front of the who is it that he was being the DCMS by? the DCMS sorry the DMS the DMCS you, you know that you're not saying that in private you know that what you say in front of those people is going to be publicized so I can't believe that he said that even with knowing that what he said was eventually going to be written down mm-hmm. captured recorded it really shocks me do you think it's an age thing a little bit as well that's what I was just going to come on to you no. can argue that it's like a sort of different generation thing and that's what he'll probably defend himself as but that that's not that's that's not the right attitude to have you can't just brush these comments off because they were born in a different generation yeah they need to educate themselves the point is is that these are the people at the top of the sport and until this sort this attitude is eradicated cricket has got cricket in england has got a long way to go to clean itself up yorkshire especially are are being scrutinised intensely now for trying to put themselves on the right track. They basically they sacked their entire coaching staff because there's a report going in, being done into dressing room culture in men's and women's cricket because that's what a lot of the players were saying is that, oh, we were doing it because it was a sort of dressing room banter sort of thing. But this is these are serious accusations in my in my eyes. Yeah, these are ser- serious. The one thing that sticks out for me, which sort of epitomises cricket in England, is... The 2019 Cricket World Cup final, which was played at Lords in London, which is the home of cricket, between England and New Zealand, the, there's a, there was an image of the sort of Lords members clubs, and you can imagine the sort of like people who are part of that. To use a sort of semi-political term, oh, pale, pale male, male and stale, stale. exactly. Oh, yeah. And there was these videos of these men who looked about 80, 85 years old with their sort of with their like like almost straw hats on really and i'm not attacking them personally again but they were none of the seats in the sort of in the lord members area were reserved and when the gates opened these men were running to get the best seats in the house basically at 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 their age and it just to me that image england won that game and it was a brilliant day if you're a cricket fan you'll understand it was it was an amazing day that video to me summarizes the state of english cricket yeah is that and like i say cricket around the world is a brilliant sport and i absolutely love it but it's got a long way to go definitely do you feel like that's a good place to end it for today i feel i feel it's, it's a good place to end definitely and just sort of on that note of cricket i'm wearing my cricket jersey now funnily enough because tonight the england women are playing the test match of their ashes series against australia so I wish them all the best of luck for that. Definitely. One of my favourite podcasts, No Balls Cricket Podcast, that is run by a current and former England cricket player. I absolutely love it. And then as well, the men are playing in there in a T20 match against the West Indies with the series currently tied at 1-1. So Fabulous. All the best of luck to them. It's quite an exciting night for cricket. So 
Brilliant. Nobody texts Jack tonight. Yeah, nobody texts me. <laughs> no, I'll probably be in bed if it's Australia. I'll be listening in the morning and catching up. Oh, bless you. Have you got anything to plug at the end of it? Um, no, just that I can't believe it's Wednesday already. I know. And I can't believe it's nearly the end of January. Yeah, that's, that's quite what scary. What a month. What a month it's been. What a month. We are smashing 2022. We, we are. are doing so well. To, so To sort of paraphrase what Lin- Lindsay Hall said last week, what a month. What a month. <laughs> brilliant okay so, so goodbye from me yes and it's goodbye from me as well and like i say earlier we'd love to hear from you please please get in touch on our social medias on our irp blog and the instagram that is coming instagram imminently that, that, is, that will be probably out by the time this goes up yeah. and like i say i don't want to be sort of shamelessly self-promoting my own stuff but you can you can check out my blog at the life of roberts.wordpress.com And yeah, I think that's everything. Yeah, that's all from me. That's all from me. And we shall see you in the next episode. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.